Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I'm back with David Batman Brown to talk about dextromethorphan. Yep. You ready for that? Yep. Quick introductions. Uh, my name is Dave. I am a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And I'm Batman. <laughs> By the way, if you've been listening to this series of podcasts over the last week, there's been a little bit of an ongoing feud between uh, David Batman Brown and Joshua Superman Hansen. And uh, oddly enough, you as Batman have uh, snuck in, sneaked in. I don't know what past tense of it is. At the end of the podcast, a little uh, barbs about Batman versus Superman that have been kind of funny. So if you're paying attention, we'll see where they sneak in today. Dextromethorphan. Uh, yeah. Uh, tell me how you came to the decision of having a podcast about dextromethorphan. So during this week, we've been kind of covering substances of misuse that are um, less recognized or um, sometimes unknown. In this case, I believe that this is a phenomenon that's um, semi, um, like I should say that Physicians and pharmacists are, are semi-well aware of it, and it's misuse. However, um, still remains something that's readily available over the counter. Um, and uh, it's a significant problem, particularly in juvenile populations and um, young kids that are finding a substance that they can access to um, misuse. So it's also important to consider in other people who are taking a medication and then they ingest this and you have to worry about interactions with that that could be potentially fatal um, either directly or through accidents. I think there's also some some things that uh, make it helpful for this podcast as well in that uh, this medication is used for psychiatric purposes Yeah, in part. So um, I, I know that I'm going a little bit out of uh, order here, but just very, very quickly, I want to comment on pseudobulbar affect. We don't see that, I don't think, in the shelf exam for psychiatry, uh, a medication called Nudexta, which is a branded name for a combination of quinidine and dextromethorphan, uh, is used to treat that uh, sudden and unexpected laughing or crying that can happen post-stroke, right? So there's your high yield section for the shelf that may or may not show up on the shelf. And now the not so high yield part, and that is that there's a newly approved FDA, FDA approved medication, as far as I can tell, uh, a combination of dextromethorphan and bupropion that is now FDA approved to treat depression. And that is uh, kind of a shocker to me. Yeah, and specifically treatment resistant depression. I didn't even notice that on the uh, FDA approval. I, I'm interested to see where this goes. And just barely, uh, by the way, I didn't read it thoroughly. I just saw it and was kind of shocked and immediately sent <laughs> copies of the uh, PI to uh, uh, Dr. Whitehead, our, our medical director here. So, so that's maybe the high yield part where this has a lot of overlap with psychiatry. And then we also see this in the misuse segment of psychiatry. Before we kind of uh, jump into the nuts and bolts, you have an interesting quote here. Uh, tell, well, me, tell me why you put that actually, there. Actually, I, I listed that as an um, option for psychopathology lectures for your students in the future if you need more source material. 
Well, I always need to recognize material. DSM diagnosis. Um, but the name of is a particular song called "The Difference Between Medicine uh, and Poison Is the Dose," and mm. that theme probably fits with a lot of the medications that we've seen this week. It does, and in particular with um, this one, as we'll see, there's a use case and and a worst use case. Yeah, and, and outside <laughs> of that, um, not so much. I'm going to start at the history, even though uh, we have a couple of other things before this. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to go back to the discovery of heroin, just very, very briefly, because I think that's where the story starts. The chemists working in, at Bayer, uh, the people that developed aspirin, also uh, developed heroin. Yep. And the goal was that this would be an antitussive. And because I didn't know the difference between an antitussive and an expectorant, uh, one is locally acting and one is centrally acting. And I think the idea of both is to reduce coughing. Yeah. Does that sound right? Um, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I believe an expectorant is to help clear mucus from your respiratory tract. And an antitussive would be to suppress cough in the reflex in the medulla. So that's kind of how I always understood the difference, and I uh -huh. did come across something that said an expectorant is still a local oh. treatment and an antitussive is a central treatment. So yeah. in any case, um, the, the heroin approach to treating coughs, uh, I think there are a lot of people looking at other alternatives for uh, reducing coughing, right? And, uh, Dextromethorphan was not the medication that they, or the substance they came up with initially. I think uh, LaRoche came up with uh, racemic res, um, methorphan or yeah. racemorphan, racemethorphan, race uh, and I, I don't uh, know that I'm saying that right. Yeah, it's because these names have so many R's in them that it just becomes sort of word salad. So they synthesized a racemic parent compound called racemorphan. Um, race morphan or race methorphan? Uh, race morphan. Race morphan, okay. Yeah. And then with race morphan, they separated uh, later, and I don't know who separated this out, mm -hmm. into racemic dextromethorphan and then the... Uh, the L-racemic counterpart. Levo, uh, levo, which was never pursued but appears to be a potent opiate or opioid. Uh, well, yeah, it's an opium alkaloid derivative, so... So I think so. So we have um, these substances that have uh, opioid roots uh, come out of, I think, this discovery of heroin, which I suspect is an antitussive. I don't know now. Yeah. And uh, one of the challenges with some of this is that we now have, uh, codeine was, I think, the prototypical antitussive. And it seems that that there was an effort to find safer antitussives. And what's fascinating to me is I went back, I found an article from like 1983 that said essentially, Europe, you need to be more like the United States and get rid of codeine and start using dextromethorphan. Dextromethorphan's now in, uh, as of very recently, more than 120 over-the-counter uh, combinations. It was approved as an antitussive by the FDA in the 50s. And I can't find a, a PI, a 
package insert or prescribing information, I'm still not sure which that is supposed to be, for this medication dextromethorphan. Yeah. But you can find the PIs for this new medication uh, with bupropion or bupropion and dextromethorphan as well as the combination of quinidine and dextromethorphan for the treatment of pseudobulbar affect. So, so there are PIs out there, they have a number of warnings, it's clearly out there. But generally speaking, we're going to talk about the uh, data around the antitussive more than we are around the two medications. Does, does that sound right to you? Yeah, and um, we should know too, dextromethorphan is not something that you purchase in isolation. Um, Almost never shows up alone, does it? Yeah, it's always like an adjunct in some type of cough medicine. And so on that, the back of that packet, you're going to see a list of other ingredients. Um, I think when you're usually talking about expectorant, you're probably talking about guaifenesin, which is a common um, drug that's also co-administered in a lot of cough medicines. And, and for me, it was interesting because the uh, FDA has very specific language. So of all of these 120 over-the-counter combinations, there's actually a set of rules in uh, CFR about how you can list what that combination does on the back of a package. So, so there are actually some choices of words that you can use to talk about your antitussive and it's determined by federal code how you can use those. And if you have dextromethorphan in that antitussive, you can actually uh, expand some of the language that you use and have a broader um, FDA indication. Huh. Yeah, that was, I thought that was very fascinating yeah. that there's actually, you can say non-narcotic uh, cough suppressant for the temporary, select one of the following, alleviation, control, decrease, reduction, relief, or suppression, of cough, you get to pick which word it is, and then B, select one of the following, alleviates, controls, decreases, reduces, relieves, or suppresses cough impulses without narcotics. Sounds like a pick your own adventure. It seems a lot like that. And then of course, yeah, there's there's other language as well, but I thought it was interesting how you could actually build the, you know, the back panel of your OTC um, antitussive. And maybe that takes some of the marketing out of it a little bit. Perhaps, or or that's what the FDA has approved the language for. Yeah. So so talk to me about uh, dextromethorphan. Uh, you mm -hmm. you have something about the USA Navy and the CIA uh, funded activity. I didn't find that. Tell me about that, and then talk to me about the structure mechanism of action along those lines, and, and kind of walk me through the nuts and bolts of this molecule. Do you want me to dish out uh, the high yield shelf pearl if? Anybody's listening? This still. far along? Yes, <laughs> please. So the uh, big indicator, if you see any cough medicine or dextromethorphan, you need to start wondering as you look through the vignette, does this person on an SSRI or anything like that? And uh, think about serotonin syndrome. And um, That's big in the package inserts, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and although not introduced, uh, Josh was over there shaking his head vigorously. Yes, that's in the stuff I'm seeing. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so be, be ready for that. If you know nothing about dextromethorphan for your shelf exams, just know no. serotonin syndrome. Risk of that. Good. Um, so the information that I got was that they had those two isomers of race morphan, um, which have a byproduct of tartaric acid, which as far as I know, doesn't really have any... Um, drug-like effects in the body, but that was in 1952, and then it was tested 
1954 as part of a USA Navy and CIA-funded research on non-addictive alternatives to codeine as a cough suppressant medication. Do you believe that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the CIA was looking for something that was non-addictive. I think they were looking for truth serum. serum. Yeah, and um, I mean, we could climb down the rabbit hole of CIA-funded psychogenic research kind of around the same time. Um, I know MK Ultra might have been around the 50s. So we'll leave that to your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> and move on to the structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the chemical structure is interesting. Um, there's actually several different ways that the, the molecule can be synthesized. However, um, it's important to note that the structure itself isn't really a psychogenic agent. It's the conversion um, metabolically to another compound, dextroorphan, uh, just to throw more R's in the game, is a psychoactive agent and um, has dissociative and hallucinogenic properties, primarily due to the fact that it is blocking an NMDA receptor in the CNS. Um, Dextroorphan is produced by O-demethylation of dextromethorphan, specifically by CYP2D6. Um, and it also has a notably longer elimination half-life than its parent compound. So it's able to accumulate in the blood after subsequent um, re and repeated administrations. There's actually guidelines in terms of uh, how you should dose dextromethorphan, and it's suggested that you should really kind of go for a one-and-done approach where you administer enough of the medication initially and avoid multiple administrations kind of due to this effect. The other mechanisms of action that it has besides blocking that NMDA receptor would be um, serotonin receptor um, reuptake inhibitor, and it's also a net reuptake inhibitor, norepinephrine. If you had listened yesterday, uh, to our podcast on gabapentin and pregabalin. You may be familiar with the sigma receptor, so it uh, is a sigma-1 delta receptor agonist. It's a negative allosteric modulator of acetylcholine receptors. And just as a reminder of what a negative allosteric modulator is, is it's either a uh, uncompetitive inhibitor reducing the activity on those receptors, or it's um, a agonist that binds and reduces the activity at that site. Um, so a partial agonist or a partial antagonist? Um, a partial agonist would have a positive result but limit the overall net effect, whereas a negative um, binding affinity would reduce almost like the opposite. Would reduce it but not completely kind of thing? It's yeah. not a full antagonist? Yeah, it's not an antagonist in that it stops. It's almost, um, it's inhibiting Okay. So it would reduce the risk of depolarization, not just um, block activity of the receptor. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we also have stimulation of the serotonin receptor 1B and 1D, histamine H1 receptors, alpha-2 adrenergic receptors, and then um, muscarinic acetylcholine receptors. This looks a little bit like... Uh, in some ways a combination of um, mirtazapine and an SSRI in some ways, right? Yeah, and maybe that's what they're thinking when they combined it with bupropion, because I know, is it, um, no, I'm thinking of 
California rocket fuel is venlafaxine and mirtazapine, not bupropion. And wellbutrin. And bupropion. It's the three together, I think, is what Uh, I've heard. But maybe that's California rocket. Where did you hear that? (laughs) Um, The first time I ever heard it was actually when I was doing my master's program um, from a pharmacologist because I guess it was so pervasive in California as a treatment-resistant depression approach in which really... We're combining the only time where we have two SSRIs on board effectively, but they're more like serotonergic agents, so it's not even really a true double SSRI combo. Yeah, and, I, and again, I thought it had Wellbutrin or Bupropion as well, so I thought yeah. that's the. I always thought it was three that made the California rocket fuel, oh. but I could be wrong. Yeah, my understanding is a Effexor or Venlafaxine, and then Mirtazapine, um, but I don't know. Huh. Well. <laughs> as after, after that aside, um, um, so uh, post-conversion. So just as a reminder, it gets converted to uh, dextroorphan, which contributes to the therapeutic effects and then also hallucinogenic effects. And then the cough suppression effects is due to um, binding in the medulla. Um, specifically, the respiratory center in the medulla is called the pre-Botzinger complex. Um, you will be tested on that tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you were probably tested on that in medical school. Um, yeah, I don't know that I've ever heard of that, so yeah. thank goodness <laughs> I wasn't tested on it. But uh, just as a side, that's where you know GABA binds when it's causing respiratory um, depression, and then it also has glutamate, serotonin receptors, and adenosine receptors. By any chance, is this the same place where... Uh, opioids are binding that cause suppression of respiration or respiratory depression I think is the correct phrase. I believe so and I think there's more to that story than just the mu opioid receptor as well. So it could Um, be an NM because it does seem like this maybe mu receptor is closer related or the mu receptor activity of opioids might be related to NMDA receptor activity. We, we saw that with some of the substances like COT when we had the discussion about that, how monoamines are different and alike in many ways. So I, I wondered if there was something that you'd come across. I didn't see anything along those lines. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see that. Um, and then I think we had mentioned um, at the time it was currently in phase four trials for that bupropion combo and now it is no longer it is actually FDA approved yeah so there's two trials that I found uh, so so just to give you some sort of sense of the number of trials um, we had this interesting conversation uh, yesterday but uh, the the way that gabapentin has been used in so many areas dextromethorphan seems to have that same kind of it's good for what ails you in a lot of different ways kind of activity going on. So when I look at clinicaltrials.gov, there's uh, 200 and change trials ongoing right now with dextromethorphan. One of the ones I looked at was dextromethorphan only for treatment of uh, major depressive disorder. There's some, uh, there are a lot of other trials as well. So a lot of use with as an opioid adjunctive medication, so tonsils, chemo, uh, peripheral neuropathy, fibromyalgia, uh, other things like OCD. There's actually a couple of studies with amphetamine 
and memant so so with memantine for amphetamine use disorders there was a study looking at uh, Rett syndrome bipolar disorders and add-on with Depakote there was uh, John Hopkins was the group doing some of the depression research rheumatoid arthritis uh, both to prevent methotrexate toxicity and I think for pain Gulf War syndrome when used with naltrexone. There's a chronic kidney disease study ongoing, prostate neoplasms. There's actually some really interesting stuff looking at antiviral properties. So um, we've talked about genome-wide association studies before, but there was also now some ongoing things looking at, and I think this is done with DeepMind, some of the AI, looking at drug-wide association studies, right? Uh, DeepMind now has all the proteins up and it looks like different groups are looking at uh, molecules that might have activity at the various receptors and so there's antiviral uh, kinds of activity going on it might have anti-covid activity um, and and perhaps among the most interesting is that it may uh, through its uh, choline acetylcholine activity disrupt um, acetylcholine receptor 7 related cancers now it's a little bit more complicated than that because uh, I kind of got lost and, and maybe abbreviated it, but there's some acetylcholine-related uh, receptor, or not receptors necessarily, but uh, cancers or that are smoking-related. Yeah, yeah. smoking-related. Um, and so, I mean, there's all sorts of these things that are being found uh, with AI. Not, not yet, um, I, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of data for any of these things yet other than it clearly has some antidepressant activity. And, and we'll probably talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah. So, so a lot going on with this medication. It's all over the place. It's going to be a medication that has a lot more use in the future, I think, other than simply as a cough syrup and as a, uh, as a uh, uh, anti-pseudobulbar um, affect medication right, or a treatment of that. So, so a lot happening, a lot happening. Um, metabolism mm -hmm. I think is worth knowing a little bit more about so we we do know about the FDA approvals right and a couple of things that you need to know is um, first of all that the half-life is very short right so well at least it, it was seemed to be it could be depending on who you are on who <laughs> you are and so uh, at least with um, the quinidine dextromethorphan combination used to treat pseudobulbar affect that half-life is extended with the use of quinidine. Yeah. Um, it, it's a 2D6 activity, right? So maybe it's the dextromethorphan and not the dextro, dextrofan? Dextroorphan. Dextroorphan? Um, yeah. Because there's not two O's? I don't know. Um, um, yeah, dextroorphan. It's almost like the way I figured it out through spelling is you got an orphan at the end. Of a dextro. Dextro. But, it, <laughs> but it, it only has one Dextro. O. Dextro. Well, I think I misspelled it when I wrote that. Oh, is it two O's? Too. Okay, well, that helps so, me there. So it's dextro orphan. So, so maybe dextromethorphan is the critical aspect of treatment with the pseudobulbar affect, but it, it seems that there's a lot of uh, interest around dextroorphan, at least for the, the antitussive effect. The other thing that's important to mention about that is it's also metabolized by CYP3A4, which of course you have different quantities of in your liver, um, which leads to the end demethylation and the formation of a molecule called MEM. So 
that might be a possibility also in the treatment of pseudobulbar affect as it's the MEM shunting more to that pathway and also slowing the formation of uh, dextro orphan. Interesting. Um, and I hadn't heard that before. And of course, that combination with quinidine bumps up the half life from four hours to 13 hours. Um, a lot of medications are 2D6 inhibitors. Uh, a lot of medications that we use in psychiatry, uh, proxetine, fluoxetine, uh, bupropion, these are all metabolized through 2D6. And I think depending on whether somebody's a rapid metabolizer or a normal, normal metabolizer, wild yeah. type metabolizer, or an impaired metabolizer, right? You can have the, the limited 2D6. That uh, those medications can kind of stack up and not metabolize, I think. So might be something to think about as well. And I read about 5 to 10% of Caucasians are poor DXM metabolizers, putting them at increased risks for overdose and death. So I assume that maybe it's the CYP2D6 poor, um, maybe that's an association. Might be where some of the risks are. Um, one of the other things I would just add here, so we talk about like these antitussives as if they're used occasionally for colds, and, and I think there's some truth to that, but one of the things that really stood out to me as we looked through this was there is this uh, really um, important need. There are a lot of people that have chronic coughs, and it's not just from ACE inhibitors, right? Yeah. It, it's, it seems to be, uh, I think one of the articles I looked at seemed to think that maybe there was a common mechanism for this. Maybe it was environmental, environmental maybe it was uh, sequelae of some infection. I don't, I don't know. I didn't um, read far enough into the literature to have a sense of that. But there's not a good treatment for chronic cough. Yeah. And, and dextromethorphan is looked at as maybe one of those treatments, but it, I think people are left wanting, right? Even though this seems to be a better cough medicine than codeine in a number of ways, both with, in terms of satisfaction and benefit, it seems like if you read a lot of literature, there's a lot of unhappiness with our current antitussives. Yeah. Uh, did you come across the same thing? Yeah. Okay. Any other comments on that? Um, I'd say part of the reason why maybe um, DXM is not the ideal answer to that is there can be so many medication interactions. Um, just you know, not withstanding the toxicity from over-administration of DXM in isolation. It's usually combined with other things, and as I mentioned earlier, you can't really buy it by itself um, that I'm aware of. No, it seems like um, it's all, always in combination, right? And then so you worry then about a buildup of those other substances uh, if you're dosing it kind of chronically. So we've, th there's a recommended dosing, 15 to 30 milligrams, although it looks like something you mentioned earlier is that maybe you go to a 60 milligram right off the bat, leave it alone because it does have, the, the dextroorphan has that long half-life. Yeah. Uh, pediatrics, a little smaller dose. Intoxication, we've, we've spent most of the podcast talking about intoxication as if it were accidental. Yeah. Um, it doesn't I, seem to happen very much, though. It seems to be an intentional phenomenon. Um, yeah. So I have noticed that adolescent populations, you know, high schoolers, they um, will have these parties where they buy coughs of medicine over the counter, and they do what's called robo tripping. I think is the most common name, or red devils is the name because corsetin tablets are red, small pills, and then they'll take a bunch of it and have like a hallucinogenic experience. 
not realizing that it can be potentially fatal. We didn't, so when I look at MMWR, we saw, I think, three cases of overdose poisoning in adult, in, in babies. Yeah. Or infants, maybe was the language they used. But I didn't see a lot of death-related um, events associated with dextromethorphan use. Did you find uh, numbers on deaths? It's hard to get the actual numbers. And I think part of what's maybe clouding that is um, if toxicity does occur, there's other lethal substances like acetaminophen overdose. So it could be if someone has overdosed on DXM, you know, it gets... It's the combination. It's, yeah, or it gets filed as like, you know, liver failure due to acetaminophen toxicity. I'm not sure about that, but um, that seems to be what typically causes death. So I, I found, um, I, I couldn't find anything that really said mm -hmm. the medication harms you physically. Other than one article, and you, I think, found something very similar. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Olney's lesions? O-L-N-E-Y apostrophe S. Yeah, so we had a, a question about this because PCP and ketamine um, are other drugs that target the NMDA receptor and, and block it. PCP, interestingly enough, um, it's been associated with DXM um, as a street association. People call DXM the poor man's PCP. Um, sort of like uh, loperamide <laughs> is the poor man's opium. Yeah, or, or methadone. Or methadone, yeah. Um, so I think it was postulated then because PCP and ketamine can cause these old knees lesions, which are related to anti-NMDA toxicity um, that cause... They're, they're like vacuoles in the brain. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be in cases where someone is exposed to like an isolated anti-NMDA receptor uh, medication. So um, it's thought that the data that was demonstrated on whether DXM causes this is a little mixed and inconclusive. And it's been postulated that there are other substances that can be administered that possibly suppress the formation of Olney's lesions. Um, some have been like GABA-A receptor modulators that um, prevent neurotoxicity. So it could be like benzodiazepines and possibly barbiturates, alpha adrenergic agonists, and clonidine. And it's interesting because I think the article I ran across had looked at these in uh, animal models and said that there seemed to be a difference between injected uh, injected dextromethorphan and oral dextromethorphan. That oral dextromethorphan is safe. Yeah, and of course we did the studies with injectable and now we're administering oral over-the-counter, so. Yeah, I don't know the answer to this, but all these lesions are out there, something to keep our eye on. Outside of that, I mean, if you really get uh, overdosed on this, you have kind of the normal gamut of stuff, right? You might be a little stumbly, you might have uh, double vision, you might sweat, you might have urinary retention, and then if you hit it really hard, you get the effects that uh, adolescents are seeking, which is that uh, hallucinatory event, right? Dissociation, maybe. Yeah. Um, but no, we, we don't see, at least to this point, from dextromethorphan, not the kind of stuff we saw where, like, uh, what, 10%, was it 10% of the people that uh, were dying from uh, opiate overdoses, opioid overdoses, 
they had the Gabba Pen on board. We didn't see the same number of like, you know, 100 people here, 100 people there in this jurisdiction, that jurisdiction that seemed to be affected by loperamide. If I re am I mixing that up with gabapentin now? No, uh, I didn't really see a lot of uh, abuse cases or uh, misuse cases where somebody was co-administering another substance. Yeah, we just we're just not seeing the death. We we saw that with loperamide. I think we saw that with gabapentin. Not with this, but there are other things that are problematic. Yeah. So hallucinations seem kind of like a problem to me. Um, but the other thing that I think is kind of a problem is mania. Yeah. Talk to me about mania. Um, so mania is uh, something that we worry about with like a lot of stimulant, like medications, right, or mm -hmm. hallucinogenic substances. So um, I think one that's been on top of mind is like cannabis things that um, could potentially cause hallucinations with misuse. Um, so even in what I found in the data was smaller doses can induce uh, manic episodes. Mm -hmm. And kind of also independent of that, you can have tactile hallucinations, um, visual hallucinations, um, and sort of um, physical or out-of-body experiences, so like dissociation. Um, and I think it's hard to disseminate those side effects sometimes from the manic episodes, which could also be um, with sort of what we consider to be psychotic features. So, so let me just make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. From your perspective, the way you read the data, it wasn't as easy to see the manic episodes as true manic episodes. Yeah, and it, I mean, it could be something that maybe this is an agent that is um, like provoking a manic episode in an individual that has bipolar one. and So I do know there are a number of case reports on this, right? We went uh -huh. back, I think there were case reports as far back as the 60s on psychosis. And then there were some that started popping up in the 90s on mania. Uh, what, I, what I think is interesting though is when I was using this here, we, would, we were trying to use it, uh, the, the idea was we're, we're desperate, so talking about off-label use a little bit, right? We were desperate and trying to figure out what if we have somebody who is emotionally labile, right? So think along the lines of borderline personality disorder and, and a couple of the other things along those lines. Would something that helps with, um, with this... Uh, affective instability that I have the, the approval for, would it help with borderline personality disorder symptoms? And, and the answer was, we saw a lot of people get manic with it here. Yeah. So, so stop sleeping, not necessarily more psychotic. I know we had somebody, I, I, we had the pharma reps in here uh, telling us, hey, you can, and, and you, know, you can use this, use it broadly. You have a lot of people who probably have this pseudobulbar affect. Uh, and you can use it. And I said, I, I don't, it doesn't work in my hands here because my patients get manic. He said, well, we'll bring in an expert and tell you how to use it. And I said, let's do it because anything I can find that helps my patients, right, that I can, that has the data and the experience, I was happy to use it. And I said, hey, the problem seems to be that my panic, my patients keep getting manic on it. And that was kind of the end of the discussion because he said, yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the expert said kind of the same thing, right? And, and it's interesting because there are plenty of case reports on full-blown mania associated with, with uh, Nudexta for pseudobulbar affect. My, my, my sense is, again, this is, there, there are case reports of association 
with use for mania that I think are pretty valid, not just the psychosis. So I, I tend to lean that way. I think uh, your reading took you a little bit different direction. Um, and then one thing we could definitely speak to is sort of the mechanism of action. And we know uh, if this has the potential to um, precipitate serotonin syndrome, then it's not too far of a stretch to ma imagine that even mania. that alone could be precipitating mania outside of the other 500 receptors that this is hitting. The, the, yeah, the, this medication seems to And, and uh, that uh, presynaptic alpha-2 receptor that mirtazapine uses seems to be pretty potent in terms of serotonin as well. So both an NET, a CERT, and that alpha-2, I think it's that alpha-2 that it's referring to. I, I think this makes it a fairly potent uh, serotonergic medication. So, so I think that does have a mechanism. And, and from my perspective, I think the take home is it's being misused a lot. There are people that are intoxicated to the point where they are stumbling and um, impaired by the medication that with the concomitant substances in place you could have damage, whether that's acetaminophen. Even bromide was speculated as a risk, although I couldn't find any data on that, right? But to me, the risk in psychiatry is associated with mania, probably. Yeah. That's, that seems to be the biggest risk. And mood instability, that, yeah. that would come from mania and you know, kind of the behaviors that are associated with that. And then some of the deaths are, of course, could be uh, accident attributable deaths. Somebody's hallucinating, they might walk into traffic. It's yeah, we always, we always say stuff like that, and I think if you look at mortality tables, accidental death gets pretty, I mean, it's one of those things that clearly uh, beats the population norms. So whether that is walking in front of traffic or our patients do things that are really unusual, right, that are manic, and that's the one we imagine most, but it's always something really odd that doesn't need to happen. Yeah. Um, shouldn't, shouldn't. I'm told not to say shouldn't. Shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't are bad, right? How about you? Uh, probably shouldn't. Just leverage it. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Uh, what have we not talked about with dextromethorphan that we need to tackle? Um, so one of the things I was going to talk about was acute versus kind of long-term intoxication because there are habitual regular users of this med who have kind of noted certain effects that occur at certain dosages. So with acute uh, intoxication, you'd you would expect confusion, inappropriate laughter, agitation, paranoia, euphoria, hallucinations, other sensory changes, uh, feeling the the feeling of floating and changes in hearing and touch sensation. I think a lot of these sound like the same type of effects that people would report on ketamine or something like that. And this um, is a high dose one time, or is this high dose chronic? This is a high dose one time okay. effect. So probably a lot do that anti-NMDA effect, and possibly potentiated by you know increased norepinephrine, increased serotonin. Um, Three-dose dependent plateau of long-term misuse. So this is a defined level, or I should say certain dosage um, expectations. So with 100 to 200 milligrams, you get a mild stimulative effect. With 200 to 400, you get euphoria, visual hallucinations. And with 300 to 1500, distorted sensory perceptions, tactile hallucinations, loss of motor coordination, and uh, out-of-body experience. Um, kind of with the three to ten times recommended dosing, we see things like nausea, restlessness, insomnia, talking fast, which 
Oh, that sounds like a manic symptom. A lot of this sounds like a manic <laughs> episode, doesn't it? Yeah. Dilated pupils, glassy eyes, and dizziness. Um, and then with 15 to 75 times recommended dosing, then you start to see hallucinations, dissociation, vomiting, blurred vision, double vision, um, bruxia, hypotension or hypertension, tachycardia, shallow respiration, diarrhea, urinary retention, muscle spasms, sedation, paresthesia, blackouts, inability to focus, severe itchiness, um, and acute psychosis, which... How hard is it to get that much in you? So if we, let's see, look at a bottle of like Robitussin DM. DM. Yeah. Let's see if we could figure out so the, the dose here. How many doses in a bottle of Dextro DM? Dextromethorphan in the bottle. So I think there's probably 10 or 20 doses, right? So maybe one bottle would get you near that. Uh, setting. Now there are some limitations, right? Uh, you can't go in, we talked about this with uh, loperamide. You can go in and buy as much loperamide as you want, right? It's not yeah. behind the shelf. Uh, you can get some metadine to potentiate that. This has restrictions. You're not supposed to be able to buy this uh, unless you ask for a pharmacist. They require ID. They keep track of how many bottles you buy, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So, Although I have found it not behind the counter a couple of times at various places. And my understanding is the the policy for regulation isn't to keep it behind the counter yet. Um, unlike for dextromethorphan, I thought it was. Yeah, I I'm not sure. I think it is. Um, I think you're supposed to be. show idea yeah. to get it. Yeah, okay. and I think it's one bottle that you're supposed to be able to. Well, maybe more, but you have to give your ID and. Huh. Um, and I think you're not supposed to be able to, to buy it if you're an adolescent. Yeah, that would make sense that it would be like a requirement to at least have a driver's license or older. Yeah. So I'm seeing in a 20 milliliter dosage of Robitussin DM, you get about 20 milligrams of dextromethorphan. So it depends on how many milliliters of a 480 bottle. So you got uh, like four fluid ounces. Now I have to convert ounces to milliliters. <laughs> Compelling <laughs> podcast audio here while we're doing math. Um, so that's about 120 milliliters, roughly. To get toxic, so maybe 15 times the dose. If we took 120 and multiplied it by um, by 20, then we get 360. So half milligrams. a bottle should make you psychotic. Yeah, don't do that though. <laughs> Please don't do that. Yeah. Um, all right, so I was kind of wondering how, how many bottles uh, would you have to drink um, if, our, if our patients who, some of them, do use dextromethorphan at times, how, how would that work out, right? How does that uh, play out? So it wouldn't take as much as I had thought, perhaps less than a bottle. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure based on body weight and how good of a metabolizer you are, all of those things are going to play into that. And you can't get, I think, urine to test that you have to ask for it specifically it wouldn't be in a common talk screen yeah all right uh what else have i not asked you about um so we had kind of mentioned the risk due to co-ingestion with um, any serotonergic agent so you again you're going to be worrying about serotonin syndrome serotonin syndrome and the other substances it's commonly co-administered with are um, acetaminophen and then also uh, Benadryl sometimes as well. So that could also be con 
attributing to psychosis, taking enough Benadryl in high amounts, independent anticholinergic effect. And is chlorpheniramine also anticholinergic? I think it might be. Yeah. Yeah. So anticholinergic toxicity with that. And so um, some of the other effects you could expect would be liver damage from some of the substances, vomiting, seizures, and coma. Um, Mostly from the other substances then. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I, I think I think that probably pulls everything together. Um, I, I'll give you the chance to close it out and do a team out. Um, here's my take home. I'm intrigued to see that this medication has now moved into treatment for depression with an FDA approval. It seems like the abuse potential is still concerning to me, and yet at the end of the day, I don't see, um, I think you'd have to take a whole lot of pills to make this abusable. So I don't think that the pills I'm prescribing will increase the abusability of this substance, but it might move it more into mainstream where people are more familiar with it. I'm also a little bit less worried now at the end of this podcast about intoxication compared to where I was before. This has to be something that's not only sought out, but you almost have to go out of your way to become intoxicated. I'm still very worried about manic switches and after doing the podcast while I was aware of this before. I'm more aware of it now and I think there's more data to that. It looks like the trials, and I'll try and get my hands on the FDA approval trials, uh, the pivotal trials that were used to approve, what's the brand name of this now? Avenira, Avenuria. Um, um, we have it. You have it written down here somewhere. I saw it. Yeah. Um, uh, Avelity. Avelity. Yeah. Uh So, so I'll be looking at those clinical trials with Avelity to see how often they had manic switches in those. Right. But but this is incredibly interesting to me. You start wondering about uh, different pathways for. Um, activity for our patients. If it, it, There's always been this speculated idea about schizophrenia and that uh, acetylcholine receptor, right? Maybe this is going to get us closer to, closer to some understanding of that as well. I, I'm interested to see where this takes us. Yeah. I'm more positive about this medication after the podcast than I was before and um, hopefully a little more aware of some of the nuances of the prescribing. That's my take home. Yeah, I would say um, I look forward to that data as well. Um, I'm not wholly convinced that the data on ketamine in treatment-resistant depression is wholly compelling yet. Um, this would probably behave similar to ketamine in my estimate as to the treatment of depression. So I look forward to kind of seeing if uh, Avelity is helpful in treatment-resistant depression and um, seeing how that works. Then, of course, you think if this is helpful in treatment resistant depression and it's a contraindication to use SSRIs in any patients that are susceptible to mania then you know and this one isn't isn't your solution for that I yeah. don't think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah um and that just drives home that high yield uh, shelf question for they'll get you that one point <laughs> hopefully <All right. laughs> hopefully you're asked that now Anything else? Um, no, I, I think that's it. So um, this is Batman saying that Superman is a cool guy. <laughs> Team out. Team out. Psych.